guys ready? I'm ready. All right. Well, thank you all for, for joining us today. Um, I'm pleased to be joined by uh, Turner Home, head of Clarkson's Investment Banking or Offshore Investment Banking, Charlie Papavisas, uh, partner at Winston & Straw, Ben Nolan, head of Maritime Research at Stiefel. Uh, today we're covering offshore wind, and uh, I work for a company called Anetti. I'm the head of corporate development and IR. And we're going to have a short presentation, but we install offshore uh, wind turbines out at sea. That's one of our vessels, the Scylla. It's a, a WTIV, a wind turbine installation vessel. And that vessel will load turbine components at the marshalling harbor, sail out to the wind farm, jack up, install the components, jack down, and repeat the, that process. But rather than talk just about an eddy, wanted to talk about the opportunity in offshore wind. Uh, this is the, the offshore wind capacity, uh, annual capacity additions from Rystad, and they have the, the industry growing at a compound annual growth rate of 22%. And what you'll see here is capacity additions between 15 and 40 gigawatts per year. This is 4C offshore's forecast. They have about a 17% compound annual growth rate through the end of the decade. Um, they have 15 to 35 gigawatts of capacity added being each year through the decade. And I think what's interesting about this is in the bottom left, uh, you can see the capacity that was added from 1990 to 2015. And each year through the end of the decade, more capacity will be added in a year than was added in, in, from 1990 to uh, 2015. And this is Bloomberg. They go out a little bit further, but what you'll see here is also 15 to 40 gigawatts of capacity added each year. Um, and the reason I bring this up is there's a lot of noise around offshore wind, but one thing is clear is that this build-out is happening. It's significant, and the second part is that it's global. Uh, this was I, an interesting slide I, I got from Reistad, which shows that offshore wind um, capex could exceed offshore oil and gas by 2030. And whether that happens or not uh, doesn't really matter. I think the important part is we're, we're seeing CapEx increase from below $50 billion a year today up to 100 by 2030. And we are a very, very small, I know this is probably hard to see, but this is the overall CapEx of an offshore wind farm project. Turbine installation is only 2% of the overall CapEx. Uh, very, very small piece, but you can't get power to the wind farm if you don't install the turbines. Uh, part of the opportunity in this industry is that turbines have increased in size. That's helped drive down costs, increase output efficiency, but also means they're going in deeper waters and they're heavier. Uh, the, the 12 megawatt turbines that are being installed today, this is the, the GE slide, are about the size of the Eiffel Tower. Um, and, and so putting this all into perspective, we've got a, a massive uh, order book of, of projects coming uh, over the next decade, yet not enough uh, available vessels to install these larger turbines. So this is the, the forecast for uh, demand for, for 12 megawatt capable vessels is the blue line, and then the green is the demand for uh, 12 megawatt uh, projects. So the market is, is significantly undersupplied, and that's why we invested in the space. And up until December, we had said to our investors and to the market, 
given this undersupply, we expect uh, a higher day rate uh, for these assets. And in December, we were able to achieve on that. So we have a new building vessel delivering at the end of 2024, and when it's delivered, it'll go work on a project in 2025 for 60 to 73 million euros after project costs, which equates to 260,000 euros per day, or $280,000. Roughly 70 million in EBITDA on a $327 million asset is about a 21% cash on cash return. So the economics in this are quite good, but there are high barriers to entry. There's a lot of questions about this industry. And so we've got some great people up here and I wanted to give our panelists a chance and I prepared some questions for them. So Turner, we're gonna start with you. Congratulations on your promotion from head of research to investment banking at Clarkson's. As someone who has covered renewables as an analyst and now provides investment banking services to your clients, what gets you most excited about this industry? Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's pretty clear and you highlighted it in your, in your presentation. I mean, it's, it's, it's the growth. Yeah, and, and I think the risk on that growth is obviously lower, just given that instead of sort of, you know, I think in shipping, everyone's looking at future fuels debates, you're looking at regulatory risks. Um, it's essentially the opposite. Uh, you know, you have, there, there are, say, mm, some regulatory issues, there's permitting issues to get through with regards to offshore wind, but I think it is, uh, it's an industry in very strong structural growth it's also an industry that requires no subsidies. I mean, I think if you go back three or four or five years, um, you know, if that's kind of where your knowledge is coming from, then 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 that's way off. Um, offshore wind is one of the is, is the world's fastest growing source of, of energy, uh, and it's also uh, it requires no subsidies, right? So if you look at the cost levels for offshore wind, it's fifty, sixty, seventy dollars per megawatt hour. I mean, that's. That's, um, at least in Europe, it's cheaper than gas, it's cheaper than coal, it's much cheaper than nuclear. Um, and those costs have, we've seen a bit of inflation lately, but I mean, I think, you know, every industry has. So I, I, at the end of the day, it's something that is experiencing incredible uh, secular growth. Um, and uh, it has very strong tailwinds. So I think I, I think that'd be the conclusion. Oh, that, that's great. Thank you. All right. Well, Charlie's up next, and Charlie's been consulting the offshore wind industry for over a decade, uh, specifically in the U.S. And I guess to start, you know, what have you seen, and, and where are we today? Uh, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, well, the well, the industry I think is in a very exciting moment. Uh, this summer is when uh, turbines are actually being put in the water both at Vineyard, uh, the 60 plus turbines at Vineyard, which are 13 megawatts, by the way, and the 12 uh, at the South Fork project, which is uh, off the eastern end of Long Island. Uh, that's an Orsted project. The Vineyard is an Avangrid Copenhagen infrastructure project. If, if those projects go in the water smoothly, I think that's gonna be a really good sign for the US industry. Uh, if we have some hiccups, you know, there'll be things that, that'll have to be addressed. But I think it's a tremendously exciting time. There's tenders all the time. Uh, the permitting process is moving by government standards, U.S. government standards at least, at lightning speed. The Obama administration is doing yeoman's work. Um, but of course, we have a new election next year. We can have a new president in 2025. Everything could stop. Everything could accelerate. 
So there's that, those, those kind of background political aspects to be considered too. We can talk about it maybe in a little bit. Sure. That's great. Thanks. And, and Ben, um, we've seen a lot of change in, in, in maritime coverage uh, amongst banks. Some banks have, have stopped coverage. Some have trimmed areas, expanded into new areas. You cover uh, rail, shipping, LNG infrastructure, and a netty. Um, a netty is maritime. It's a little bit of engineering. It's a little bit of renewables. Uh, how do you see a netty in, in this space, and what are your kind of initial thoughts after covering the sector for a year? Yeah, it, it, it's, a, uh, it's an interesting question because for, for me, a netty, and for I think just about anybody in the U.S., uh, and Eddie is sort of a one-off. Uh, I mean, it, you you could reach into the the, um, the Danish market or other places to get to get um, a little bit more exposure, but uh, it's a it's a there increasingly there's a a group of analysts on Wall Street that are focused on energy transition related things, and so in some places it fits there. Um, and really, I think the, the name of the game is sort of aligning with where investors are at. And so uh, it, it's, uh, I, I think it's to be determined, to be honest. I mean, for me, I think it's fantastic. And as, as Turner mentioned, it is, it's nice to be, have exposure to an industry that has structural growth and isn't just purely cyclical. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll see, but I, I, I would say, uh, that lends itself to growth. I think ultimately, um, as it relates to the U.S. investor base, um, it's still challenging to to express a uh, an, an investment opinion, just because there's just not. I mean, there's an eddy, and you could go to other markets, or, or and away from that, it really gets tangential. Um, and so th there needs to be some some further penetration within the capital markets in order for the the sell side universe to be a little bit more clearly defined i think that's great thanks ben and then turner so given what ben said i we're a one-off here in the states there's a couple peers like us um, these stocks trade pretty cheap uh, discounts of 60 to 70 percent of their net asset value what sub three ev ebitda in the current year later years later so you know, how do we bank this sector? How do we grow these companies? Yeah, that's a good question, and, I, and I'll echo what Ben said. So I've a former sell-side analyst uh, covering an eddy and, and also some of the Norwegian names. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, tough, it's a tough thing, right, um, to, 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 to sort of place. And, and I think from its, 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 its sort of capital and, it, perspective, it's, it's most similar to shipping. It's most similar to, um, to, to maybe offshore rigs even even though the demand factors are, are, are quite different, but it's very capital intensive it, and, and, and it's got um, similar sort of, you know, a day rate, OPEX kind of structure that I think shipping investors would find um, uh, understandable and familiar. Um, how do we, so what was, the, what was the question about how do we get? How do we grow these companies? So, how do we grow the know, companies? You're trading yeah. at a discount yeah. to NAV, you're trading yeah. at a cheap EV EBITDA. Sure. Investors like the story, but they say, look, you're too small. So, so I think that's pretty simple, and I think that it's, um, it, it, the answer lies with the developers, because at the end of the day, you're providing services, and relative, you know, you show the CapEx uh, split, right? Like, you're, right, if you go back to that, 
Yeah, look, your turbine installation, 2% of their overall capex of an offshore wind farm, right? Like, it's it's very small, but the bottom line is that you, without one of these assets, like an eddy operates, you don't get the turbines in the water. There's no other way to do it. You know, you're going to lift it in place with a helicopter, something the size of the Eiffel Tower. You need one of these ships. And so ultimately, the responsibility lies with, um, you know, the big utilities. Uh, it could be Equinor, it could be Erstead, it could be Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners, Fangrid, um, Dominion Energy in the U.S. And I mean, I think the good news on that is like, you know, so I guess to, to, to sort of nail that down, what they need to do is provide long-term contracts, right? You need to be able to stretch the visibilities of these companies so that, you know, we can take down the cost of capital, we can see a higher valuation. I think visibility is key to that, and the only way for that to happen is for the developers to step in and start doing something. And we see some evidence of that happening, what you might call a more sort of um, proactive approach from the big developers to come in and give long-term contracts, even do it against new builds. Uh, we've seen in the U.S., uh, Maersk Supply, for example, has gotten a um, long-term contract four years for an asset that's specifically built for the U.S. Um, there's rumors they're going to get a second one. Um, and, you know, Dominion came in and bought, built their own asset, right? A little bit of a one-off special situation. But I've seen um, just recently these big developers starting to put capital directly into some of their suppliers because, again, without these suppliers, you know, turbines aren't going in the water and they're not making money. So I, so I think that um, the, the, the owners of the wind farms need to wake up to the importance of this and realize that if they don't provide that visibility, um, then you know the cost of capital is going to be too high. A lot of good points. Um, one of which I want to actually expand on with Charlie. Um, the U.S. 30 gigawatts by by 2030. Um, I guess it would be helpful to to hear what you're seeing. Happen? Yeah, no. is it going to happen? No. But what, <laughs> what? How do we get close? Or I I I don't know the exact stat, but it's something like two. You have to install two or three turbines a day starting today mm -hmm. uh, through 2030 to get to that number, and it's, it's over 2,100 turbines. It's, it's not going to happen. Uh, is, is a lot going to happen? Yes, a lot's going to happen. And, and by the way, on the Dominion vessel, I think the jury's still out on whether that was a wise thing to do. Um, Keppel has had trouble delivering the two container vessels for Pesha that preceded this vessel. Uh, there's re reportedly a significant cost overrun, um, you know, and it's, it's definitely been delayed in terms of its delivery date. And in fact, it's not going to install the, the project it was originally designed for, which is the, the Coastal Virginia project. And, and so we wind back, in case some are new, we've got this Jones Act. How does it apply to offshore what, wind? What is the Jones Act? <laughs> <laughs> How do we work through the Jones Act in, in this offshore wind development in the U.S.? Well, it's being, it's being worked through. Um, I, I mean, I, I think the Jones Act is a good thing for the industry, and the reason is it reserved at least some of the market for U.S. flag vessels, and which is important for the political stability of the, of the whole program and the ability of Americans to think they have a stake in this. Because if everything had been done by a European vessel, including the O&M part of the business, not just installation, then, then, you, get, then you get even more of a problem with as it as it is, which is European developers developing the U.S. market, which is the way it is today. The only one not European is Dominion. Every other entity is 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 a European-based entity. Um, so the so to me the Jones Act 
the fact that it at least reserves some of the market to qualified U.S. flag vessels is a good thing. The industry should think that. But at the same time, it causes a lot of angst because, uh, for example, you could bring in a foreign WTIV, but you can't use it to do everything you want it to do. So those sorts of things are still being sorted out. So there is uh, a law, the Jones Act, that you're aware of, so you can go the Dominion route and build a vessel, a WTIV in the U.S., which can go to the port, load the components, install the turbines, or this feeder barge solution, which requires bringing in a, a foreign flag vessel, like a Maersk vessel or a, a Netty vessel to, to do these installations. But I think Turner brought it up, and I want to build on it a little bit more, is these contracts are short. So if you look at the, the first employment contract on our new build, it's it's about nine months. So the contracts range from, from nine to 12 months. And Turner highlighted how longer duration contracts would, would be beneficial for, for the industry, uh, definitely in terms of visibility and cash flow. But, you know, Ben, you, you cover an eddy and, and we've announced some of these contracts, I guess. How would your value, well, what is your current valuation method when you look at a netty and then would these longer term contracts change how you looked at the valuation? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we use a DCF basically because, uh, and, and, and again, the DCF has a lot of variability in it as a function of, we know some of the contracts, but they don't go out very long as, as you mentioned. Um, and, you know, we don't, yeah, I mean, you could theoretically use something like NAV, but there's just, just a handful of assets in the market, so your price discovery is pretty poor. Um, as a function of that, again, you just basically have to uh, rely on the cash flows, and when the cash flows only have a couple of years' worth of visibility, uh, it, I can completely understand how an investor um, might not be in incredibly comfortable putting a high, mul a high multiple on you know, cash flows that have a lot of variability. So um, <clears throat> at the end of the day, though, I think I think where we're getting, and as we've talked about, is there will have to be longer longer duration contracts. Uh, the, the Heretofore, the industry just wasn't structured that way. And, and it, it is a little bit different in the United States. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we're getting to the point where, again, as, as a company like yours is able to get a nine-month contract that is materially higher than what it was before. And as Turner said, as, your as, as the cost for the developers creeps higher and higher, even though it's just on a small part of the overall cost basis, uh, there, there is a tendency for longer duration contracts. But I think the more important part of that is even still, even if, even if costs were to go up, let's say rates were to go up by, by 50%, it's still you know just a couple percent of the overall uh, um, piece of the pie. The bigger challenge is uh, you have to make sure that you have it because you can do all of the rest of the work. You can order your turbines and everything else. And if you if something goes wrong or you're developing, as you guys ran into in China, or actually your developer ran into in China, if, if things don't go exactly as planned, well, you're not going to finish your project. And if you don't finish your project, and to wait two years or however long it is before you can get another piece of equipment, that's a huge cost overrun. It's not just paying a little bit more for a vessel. And so I think 
Um, I think that's the, going to be the catalyst that generates longer-term contracts in combination with the fact that I think you are seeing a lot more developers come into the market. So there's a greater degree of competition for the equipment of the various types. Uh, and at the same time, the, the, the cost of getting it wrong is devastating. And so I think that will very much lend itself to longer duration. That's great. And, and to clarify, so if, if a nutty is late for a project, um, we would be liable for that cost. However, if the project is delayed, we will still be compensated uh, close to the full amount or the project is extended. So I guess we've got this this opportunity, right, because the turbines got so large that the, the current fleet couldn't supply the vessels. And at, at what point, Turner, I mean, you know, we could handle three to four to five more vessels for these larger 12 megawatt turbine vessels in the market. I think it was Vestas came out and said, we're gonna, we're gonna pause at 15 megawatts, at least now for, for the foreseeable future. Um, Turner, you've covered the space for a while, and I'm sure you've heard that before. Is, is this, does this make sense to you? Do you agree with this? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, the turbine makers are also incentivized to pause in some way. So the, the, the issue is, is that these, these turbines are just getting so incredibly big that they're in physical dimensions outgrowing their supply chain. Right, like they're they have to move all of their factories to build these turbines to the coast, so they can actually get the blades and move them to the offshore wind farm. I mean, these blades are the size of a football field or larger now, right? I mean, the the nacelles, the gear box, essentially transmission where you're generating the power. There are over a thousand tons in these things, like the size of a large house, right? Like the, everything is getting so big that vessels that were even built you know, five, six, seven years ago are starting to look obsolete because they were built to lift a turbine that's, that's, that, that, that's half the size, right? Um, and that creates all sorts of inefficiencies. But the turbine makers themselves, I think they're, they're, they spend hundreds of millions of dollars, if not more, on developing these, these models that they have now, the kind of 12 to 18 megawatt, somewhere in that range, and I think that they want to pay back on that. So everybody just needs to just chill out. Um, we have very competitive prices where we are now, and there's no point of really pushing it further. But I just wanted to add on one thing that, that Ben said that I think is critical for investors to understand and, and think about is, is it's about, you know, improving the valuation here is about lowering the cost of capital, right? And, and, and we talked about long-term contracts as one way to do that, right? So if you have much more visibility, then your cost of capital is going to be lower. But then I think another thing, another component of that is going to be having more assets, right? Um, having a bigger market cap having more liquidity in the stock, right? Like all these things are risk factors that I think are leading to punitive cost of capital for, for, for some of the companies in the space, including Inetti. And um, I think some of them are gonna be naturally worked out, right? The supply and demand balance is gonna push the developers to uh, be more active and give long-term contracts. We've seen that Cadler has gotten contracts that run out to 2030 and, and new builds. Um, which are built against long-term contracts. So it's, it's starting to happen there. And then, of course, you know, we're growing the asset base. You have two um, new builds that are, that, are, that are under construction, and that's not only going to sort of increase your, 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 your earnings pool, but it's also um, going to reduce the operating leverage to any individual asset, right? I mean, we're talking now you have essentially five ships, right? If it were tankers or dry bulk company with five ships, it'd be, you know, it'd be very small, right. very, very small. So I think that natural growth that we're going to see in the industry is going to help address the size of market cap, um, which should increase the liquidity in the stock. 
Um, and I think that the market is going to solve the long-term contract situation and bring down the cost of capital and increase valuation. It's even worse with cable layers. I mean, with the, the, the cable layers in the world that can hand handle export cable for long distances, in other words, wind farms pretty far out or connecting islands and the like, it's four. There's four of them today. And they're owned by two companies, Prismian and Nexus. That's interesting. And, and then, so, focusing on the U.S., Charlie, I mean, we've got the One Dominion vessel, and we've got a bunch of foreign flag vessels that will have to assist in this process. Where are we in terms of who's building feeder barges? Are there going to be enough of those? I've got a lot of U.S. questions for you, but I just wanted to start, start there. Um, well, people, well, companies are building crew transfer vessels, and companies are building service operation vessels. The, C, the CTVs and SOVs are the O&M side of the business. In other words, not, not entirely. You need a, you, you need a CTV to uh, hang around, to move people around for the install phase as well. Um, um, the S, the, if, for purposes of the audience, I mean, a crew transfer vessel is a, a cat, usually preferred aluminum catamaran. It's, it's fast, stable. Uh, nudges right up to the the base of the the wind farm the the tower. Um, the crew leaves, does its servicing job, comes back, and that vessel goes back and forth every day. If the wind farm is too far out, 20 miles, that becomes impractical because you spend half the day beating up your crew going in and out, and they don't have a lot of time on station. So the the alternative model is an SOV, which is an expensive vessel. The CTVs. A U.S. 10, 12 million, uh, an SOV is 80 million, maybe 100 um, in the U.S., uh, 30 in elsewhere. Um, so the um, that that vessel is a substantial vessel. It goes out for 14 days, stays on station, uh, has a walk-to-work system. Um, as I said, stays out there for 14 days. Um, you know, excellent sea keeping, excellent. Uh, habitation, a pool, a gym, uh, you know, a theater, uh, excellent food, that kind of thing. Um, those are those are the two models. Those are being built in the United States. Feeder barges, not so much. At least so far, people think they can deal with putting motion compensation on deck barges. Um, eventually, the, the, there's not going to be enough powerful tugs, definitely for the West Coast. Uh, I think that's kind of the market at the moment. But, but one thing, one thing that the U. So I wanted to add on. One thing you said is that the Jones Act is a good thing for the U.S. build out of offshore wind to sort of keep the sort of political support. Another aspect of that, I think you could say, is that it's forcing a new technical solution mm -hmm. for offshore wind, which I think ultimately could lead to the costs coming down even further and gaining. Uh, more efficiency. So, I mean, I think you understand, show this, the skill, right? Like, showed one of your vessels. So, that's both an installation vessel with the big crane, right? But it's also got this big deck on there, um, which uses, is used to transport, right? See? So, you're transporting the turbines out and installing them with the same vessel. Well, because you're not allowed to transport and install in the U.S. with the same ship, because that's coastwise trade and not allowed under the Jones Act unless it's a U.S. built vessel. Um, what the solution that Maersk, for example, has come up with is basically taking a barge that you can, like, you know, drop down the middle of that deck and lift it up out of the water, right? So that you can actually do the transportation with a much cheaper vessel, and then you can use the very expensive vessel. In the international world, this is $350, $400 million for this asset, and a barge is relatively cheap, right? I don't know, $25 million, $50 million, I mean, but, I mean, 
motion compensated would be a different since, thing. Since but, we re since but, we represent Kirby, I'm not going to comment yeah. on the 25 to 50 million. You can take my implication. <laughs> it's, it's order of magnitude cheaper than this, right? So you end up with a situation just like you have in offshore drilling, where you have the expensive offshore rig, which stays on the field. It does its, its, its highest and best purpose, which is drilling. In this case, it would be installing turbines, and you have a much cheaper supply vessel running back with the components. So I think that you, we wouldn't have tried that outside of the US. You wouldn't try that in Europe because it's seen as a bit risky and you have to build new vessels to do it. But we see that happening with Maersk. Havram is now building at least one, maybe two um, of those type of assets. So we'll see if there's a paradigm shift because of that. But without the Jones Act, it wouldn't have happened. That's all true. Paradigm shift. Oh, all right. Well, look, that's pretty interesting. If, if what Turner's referring to is uh, the, the Maersk vessel is basically shaped like a horseshoe. So that vessel can go inside and, and it actually looks to be quite interesting although it's a completely new design I think they're the the only ones doing it and, and new designs uh, certainly have their own risk but um, obviously Maersk is probably the best to do it um, back to the US mm -hmm. let's say we get all the assets and cable layers the vessels we're going to be able to to crew the you know how is that going to work because you, you mean the vessels that have to be US US fly US fly yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really think that's going to be overwhelming problem. I mean, obviously, a crew transfer vessel, you have a crew of two, two on shore, two on four people. I mean, you're not talking about a lot of people. An SOV, you need more people. Um, all the other vessels are foreign, um, pretty much. Okay. I mean, your maybe survey vessel, your standby vessels, those kind of vessels, might be U.S. flag. So I don't, I don't think crewing is really the issue in the U.S. Um, uh, there, there, there is a problem. There, there's probably not enough aluminum shipyards in the United States, uh, shipyards that can deal with aluminum. Um, so there will be some, some bottleneck there for crew transfer vessels. You need, I don't know, Clarkson's has said 130 of them. I don't know. But there's five of them now, eight being built. Just a few more. <laughs> all right. Well, I, I guess so then let's, let's, how do we do this, right? It, it, it all comes down to what you're earning. So, uh, Prior to our contract, Turner, the market was around $200,000 a day for a, a new build WTIV of, of what that vessel could earn over a year. Um, we paid $330 million for our asset, but if we went back to DSME in Korea today, probably could be about $400 million. Um, we've got $280,000 on the, uh, the new contract, but when we look at the economics, there's not enough vessels. Rates need to go up, especially if you were to go out and order a new ship today. I mean, do you see do you see that happening? Do you? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that these are small companies, right? The publicly listed companies are pretty small, right? We're all talking sub billion dollar companies, and so when you talk about a three hundred and fifty million odd new build vessel, like you know, it's the size of the market cap, right? <laughs> like, it's just it's huge. And so to ask the, these like companies that don't have huge market caps to lift huge investments, it's got to be done with visibility, right? Like I think, you know, you all moved very quickly at the right time of the cycle before we saw new build prices really take off. Um, and so I think that, that that's played out very well, and you now get a contract on the, the first of two. Um, but I think given where new build prices are and given the size of the market caps of these companies, you're going to have to have, you're going to have to have long-term contracts. And I think that the industry is, is beginning to, to understand that. And as I said, there's some examples of it that, that, that have happened. And I think, you know, you referenced the rates. Um, they have gone up a lot 
um, maybe 50%, um, I think, and it depends on what kind of vessel you're talking about, but you're probably talking sub five year paybacks on the EBITDA versus the CapEx now. Um, I think, and in some cases, you know, maybe three. Um, so in that range, I mean, and even with tanker rates being where they are, I don't know, Ben, maybe you've thought about payback on a, on a new build tanker now. What is it, like seven, eight, nine years? Right. I was just trying to think about it, and it's probably closer to that. Even yeah. with VLCC at $50,000 a day and, you know, new builds 120-plus, Yeah, it's like eight-year payback or something, yeah. right? So, like, I think that, you know, there are some tech, Technicalities is a bit more risk in this space because it's installation, it's less sort of transportation. But still, I mean, the economics are compelling for an owner, um, and the barriers to entry are real because, I mean, you know, to use a more local landmark, the Chrysler Building. Um, we're not in Europe, James. <laughs> we're in New York City. The Chrysler Building is the size of uh, a turbine uh, these days. And you're going to put a hundred of them out offshore, you know, in a windy environment. Like it's that's that's hard to do. It's not like everybody just stepping in to do that, right? Okay, Maersk, right? Well, Maersk is the world's largest shipping company, so they'll figure it out. But, uh, but I think for most, that's not going to be so easy. Economics are compelling, and I think the, the, the customers are incentivized to um, do things that are, that, that are in your favor. So I think that's a good setup. I, I think, just to jump in there, Turner, I think that is the, the barriers to entry are a lot higher than people think. People, especially if you approach it from a traditional shipping perspective, where if you just throw enough money at something, then you can have it. Uh, James, you and I on last Tuesday were on the Scylla in Amsterdam. Yes. Um, and uh, as you go see one of these things and you talk to the people that operate the cranes, um, it's, it's fascinating. Um, given the wind, given the waves, uh, one of these cranes, uh, is trying to install in a very small millimeter, several millimeter size space, these gigantic, these skyscraper level turbines. Uh, all the while, the crane is moving because of the wind and the current. It's moving in a figure eight pattern. And so you have, the, the crane operator has to match or mirror within millimeters the same movement of the turbine as it's up there being, being impacted by the blades. Like, there are literally only a few people in the world capable of doing that right now. And it's four or 500 feet high, right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's, it's nuts. And, and so, and at the same time, that's just part of it. Like, you, you have to, you have to uh, sink the legs, and they have to be perfectly synced so that the, the, it's not unstable while you're lifting these massive amounts of weight. I mean, it's an incredible engineering feat. Um, and, and I think that the, the real challenge going forward is probably going to be the finding the right people that can do this or training the right people in, in I mean, if we're talking about a 20% kegger, uh, I mean, that's, that's a lot of growth in a relatively short period of time where there is virtually no industry or very, very little industry knowledge as it stands right now. And right. you can't just take somebody off of a jack-up drilling rig and do this. It's a different skill set. It, it is, and, and we, when we invested in the space, we had ordered an asset first before we acquired CJAX, and we had looked at building out our own commercial and technical team, but as Ben pointed out, I mean, this is a very, very, very uh, engineering-type business that is not, you know, buying some dry bulk or buying some tankers and putting them in a pool. And we were very lucky to acquire CJAX. They had a great track record, great management, 
good assets. And, and so we had to, we had to acquire CGX. You saw it with sub C7, you saw it with Cattler, uh, but it's very hard to do, which brings me to my next question because there's two things as we talked about is there's high barriers to entry in this industry. There's also not a lot of private equity up until recently. Um, and that has to do with the short duration nature of the contract. So Turner, how from? Yeah. They are kind of the, the new, the new, um, the new, person or team to, to the party, although they've been around for a while working on, on this new build, but they, they've had uh, a new build on order for a while, but they were able to actually order that vessel and they're private equity backed. Yeah. So, you know, are we going to see more of that? Is that mm -hmm. one off? Well, I think Hoffram is a bit special because the, the management team was the previous, uh, the previous management team of one of the incumbent players. So they basically all just got up and left and started a new company. I mean, that can't happened so many times. So I think Hofram has a credibility to be able to do this because you know, their management team have been doing this for a very long time, supporting management team for Olson Wind Care. Will we see more private equity come into, uh, into offshore wind? Yes, um, Hofram is uh, backed by Sandbrook Capital. They have one asset uh, on order um, and they may have a second one soon. Ah, I mean, I think it's, it's possible, uh, but I don't, to be honest, I, I see private equity and offshore wind a lot, right, on the development side and various things. But on the installation vessels, ooh, I mean, you got to think about it, right? Like I said, it's a $350 million ticket for one asset. You know, I mean, even for most private equities, it's pretty, pretty big. I mean, it's $700 million in CapEx for, for two ships. Sounds familiar. I mean, it's... <laughs> it's, it's it's tough, right? Like it's to get that through the investment case. It be, because if one asset and three hundred fifty million dollars, your case becomes binary. Right. And and today, if we ordered a new, if we went back to DSME, the delivery date's probably twenty twenty seven. Yeah. So you know, it's it's hard enough with investors today telling them this contract's going to start in twenty twenty five. I know we're running out of time, so I wanted to open it up for questions uh, if anybody had. You think there might be accidents? No, Room for lawyers? No. <laughs> the transportation has to occur by vessel, not by crane. Mm. Come on, Jovi, you can do better. Than that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the other question. <laughs> Only, only, only uh, practical barriers, not real genuine legal barriers, in the sense of how long it takes to get a visa. There, there's a special visa for this kind of. Well, there's there's a special visa for people working offshore that's developed for the Gulf, the OCS visa, the Outer Continental Shelf visa, um, OCS one. Um, it just takes a while to get it. You you just show employment in a foreign con in a U.S. consulate abroad, but it just. It, it's all back backlogged. That's the only problem. And, and it's mostly British and Danish and Germans, right? It's it's a little bit different setup for crew, right? Uh, yeah, within within reason. I mean, I was going to comment before. There's a reason why all of the U.S. turbines are being installed by so far four companies: Moscalis, Van Or, Jean de Nul, and Deme. 
Does that surprise anyone? The two big, the two big Belgian companies and the two big Dutch companies, all of whom have installed lots of them? I mean, you know, the developers prefer somebody with experience. Price is important, but they prefer somebody with experience. on that if you like. I mean, I think it's a broader issue for, 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 for anyone who has signed a contract a couple of years ago and, you know, looking to execute it now, whether it's an offshore wind or otherwise, because if you look at the cost of the turbines, they're up about 30% since pre-COVID, right? And the cost of the turbines, I mean, they had it up there, but it's about 40, 50% or something in the CapEx. It's by far the biggest piece. So that's the main piece of inflation, although there is another other, other parts of it. Um, you know, the broad trend, if you kind of take a step back, is that like, if you look at the rounds, the sort of auction rounds where people basically give you a price, you basically bid in a price for a power purchase agreement. We're going to produce power from wind farms. So you bid them into a state round or a national round or whatever it is. In the UK, I mean, going back to 2015, 2016, we were talking ooh, close to $200 per megawatt hour. And now we're looking at, you know, maybe 70 in the US. It's high, a little bit lower in Europe, maybe 50. Um, because it's a more developed market. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tricky thing, right? Because um, now you, you, you had a power purchase agreement with the state, with the state regulated utility. You go through the utility board and suddenly the price that you had bid in a couple years ago doesn't make sense anymore, right? It's not way off, but it's off enough to where you, it may not be economic. Um, you might be willing to eat that if you want to, if you're a big developer and you have big plans in the U.S., but, but mostly you want to sort of hold back. So what we've seen now is that um, in one of the projects in the U.S., they're pulling out, um, even though they have an agreement, uh, this is in Massachusetts, and coming into a new bid rounds because these bid rounds roll. Uh, and, you know, I'm not an expert on that, but I think that these things will get re re resolved because it is in the interest of these states um, this is green power, yeah, it's local power. Um, in many cases, it's among the cheapest, uh, if not the cheapest source of new power for, for that state. Um, and so while there are certainly legal barriers, and I'm no inter you know, expert on that, um, I think the, at the end of the day, the economics will determine that there may be some delay, six months or a year, perhaps, but ultimately, these projects are going to get built because they make good economic sense. Thank you very much. We've hit our time. Um, thank you, Turner, Ben, and Charlie. We appreciate it. Our pleasure.